1982, Canada reported its first case of AIDS, an unknown immune illness that would soon be a household name across the globe. Canada has since diagnosed almost 90,000 people with HIV, the virus that causes AIDS. Coincidentally, the same number of registered nurses have joined the nursing profession since that time. From the beginning, nursing and HIV have been closely tied to one another. This podcast will look at those connections, hear how nurses are speaking up for the health and well-being of people with HIV, and explore ways to change the unfavorable impacts HIV is having on our communities. Welcome to Outspoken, HIV Nurses in Canada Make Noise. Association of Nurses in HIV AIDS Care is pleased to present our first episode of our Outspoken podcast, where we will learn the ins and outs of providing care to people with HIV who don't have permanent immigration status here in Canada. This means their health insurance and coverage is minimal, expired, or they never had access to it in the first place. For that, we need to know more about the Blue Door Clinic. I'm Jeff Reinhardt, and I'm a board member of CANAC. I work as a registered nurse at Sherborne Health and am one of the people who helped start the Blue Door Clinic. And I'm Katie Connolly. I'm a registered nurse and I work at Casey House. Jeff and I both work in downtown Toronto. We acknowledge that we work and live on Treaty 13 territory, which was established between the Mississauga of Credit River of the Anishinaabek Nation and the British Crown. We further acknowledge that we are surrounded by Treaty 13A, Treaty 20, also known as the Williams Treaty, and Treaty 19. We acknowledge the Wendat and Haudenosaunee people that also occupied this territory. This territory is the subject of the Dish with One Spoon Wampum Belt Covenant. This covenant was created with the Haudenosaunee Confederacy and the Anishinaabek Nation, including allied nations, to peaceably share and protect the resources around the Great Lakes. We also acknowledge the lasting impact of colonization, and that we are all treaty people. We shall honor and respect the past in order to move forward carrying the vision of the ancestors with a spirit of welcome, appreciation, and acknowledgement of the great legacy of First Nations peoples. I joined Blue Door Clinic about halfway through the planning process. Jeff, why don't you give us some background into why the clinic was needed? Sure. In Toronto, the Committee for Accessible AIDS Treatment, or CAT, has been working for years to get people with HIV or PHAs access to care and treatment despite lack of immigration status or health coverage. They had an informal network of providers who could see people for care but lacked a formal structure. We also know that the uninsured services through community health centers were often at capacity and people had a difficult time getting into care through that route. CAT's work gave them insight into a group of people that they knew needed care but were almost unknown to the rest of the healthcare system. Dr. Alan Lee, part of the Blue Door team, has been a part of CAT for many years and had this to say. 20 years ago, CAT came together because we were seeing many PHAs who were in transition, in limbo, or lost their immigration status and therefore could not have access to needed HIV treatment. Over the years, we did make a lot of strides in setting up compassionate access to medications training to help PHAs and service providers to navigate the immigration system and get service access. 
This has helped hundreds of PJ through the years. But unfortunately, in recent years, with the cutbacks in legal aids and healthcare access for refugees, migrant workers, and students, we are seeing another big increase of PHAs without adequate healthcare access and coverage. This is really unconscionable in this day and age, with the known benefits of U equals U, and the huge push for public access to PrEP to prevent HIV, that we still cannot provide needed life-saving treatment for people who are already infected. That is why we worked so hard to mobilize our community partners and started the Blue Door Clinic. The response has been overwhelming and brought me back to the early days of AIDS activism when everyone just rolled up their sleeves and did what we needed to do to help our community. Great to hear from one of the physicians who was so instrumental in setting up the clinic. So to help us understand the client experience, we've created a case study. This case study does not represent any one individual for confidentiality reasons, but rather reflects some of the common themes that we observed when working with the clients of the Blue Door Clinic. I'd like to introduce you to Juan, who is a 25-year-old gay man. Juan is Spanish-speaking and was newly diagnosed with HIV at Hassle-Free Clinic. Juan is single, has few friends, and does not have any family in Toronto. Juan does not know anyone that's living with HIV. He arrived in Toronto on a student visa to complete an ESL program. Keeping Juan and others like him in mind, how did the clinic start off, Jeff? We started with a clinical focus. We wanted to address HIV, but not just antiretrovirals or ARVs. We wanted to cover HIV primary care, including STI testing, vaccines, health promotion, health education. Plus, we knew we needed to address the psychosocial needs of being a newcomer with HIV. These needs are well documented in the literature and include things like stigma, immigration stressors, social isolation, fear of deportation, mental health issues, and challenges related to the social determinants of health. We built a multidisciplinary team with doctors for prescriptions and medical management. We had nurses for clinical case management, vaccines, blood work, and health teaching. We had intake workers for social case management and referrals for psychosocial needs. And we quickly added peer workers for additional support with case management, system navigation, and translation support. Now, these were not cut and dried roles. Because of the varied experiences of our staff, we shared the responsibility of providing this holistic care to our clients. In terms of clinic flow, we tried to anticipate the best way to set up the clinic given the resources we had available. So we started with two half-day clinics each month using a drop-in or walk-in clinic model, which we promoted through our partners and a phone line we created. We had doctors, nurses, intake workers, and peer workers provided in-kind by our partners to staff the clinic, and we were able to provide access to life-saving medications, most often through patient assistant programs run by pharmaceutical companies. A big hurdle was the cost of labs and blood tests. There's no compassion program for these costs, and they can be as high as $250 every three to six months for monitoring HIV infection. This makes it too expensive to pay out of pocket for most clients. We brought up this issue with the Ontario HIV Treatment Network, or the OHTN, and they're trying to tackle this issue. But for our purposes, we end up getting a grant from Vive Cares, which we use to cover the lab costs for Blue Door clients. And to go back to Juan, he came to us after an HIV diagnosis at Hassle-Free, remember? And so during that initial blood work we did at the clinic, Juan's CD4 came back as 187, and his viral load was around 45,000. 
The rest of his baseline labs showed he was not immune to hepatitis A, but were otherwise within normal limits. Juan initiated HIV treatment with support from patient assistance program to cover the cost of the HIV medications. We knew we could access publicly funded vaccines and SDI treatments through public health, but we quickly found out we also needed other medications. Some of our clients were being diagnosed with CD4 counts below 200 and needed SEPTRA for pneumonia prophylaxis. So for Juan, Blue Door Clinic was able to cover the cost of medications to prevent pneumonia given his low CD4. Juan completed his follow-up blood work at six weeks after starting his medication and got his first dose of the hepatitis A vaccine. The blood work showed his viral load had dropped to 178 copies. But then, just after the next clinic date, he called in saying he had developed a rash. Right, and he had just missed the walk-in clinic date, which highlights actually another point we learned about running the clinic. There was a lot of work to do between clinic days. This included following up on urgent lab results, checking in on people's mental health, and triaging health issues over the phone. Speaking of labs, we also had to start doing a more detailed syphilis assessment. Syphilis is tricky to interpret with only one blood test, and some of our clients had been tested in other jurisdictions or countries, so we amended our intake form to capture that information sooner. But that was just the beginning. Within six months of opening, the World Health Organization declared a global pandemic around COVID-19. Yeah, we had to do away with the drop-in clinic model and switch to pre-booked appointments for starters. This involved a lot more phone work for us, what with doing phone intakes with new clients, triaging the need for in-person follow-up with existing clients, and trying to respond to health needs by phone whenever possible. Especially since at the beginning of the pandemic, a lot of programs and services were closed or on reduced service, were unable to support a group of people who were already precarious. I think this would be a great time to hear from Simran and Alessandro, our two intake workers, and get their insights into care for Blue Door clients. Jeff, you had the opportunity to talk with them earlier. Let's hear more about what they had to say. Hi, I'm Alessandro. I'm a mentorship program coordinator at the Committee for Accessible ACE Treatment, and as Jeff said, one of the intake case workers at the Blue Door Clinic. Hi, I'm Simran. I am a coordinator for the Toronto Linkage to Care Project at the Ontario HIV Treatment Network and also one of the intake workers slash case managers at Blue Door. Thank you both for being part of our podcast. Let's start by getting your thoughts on what the role of the intake worker is and how that fits in with the psychosocial needs of the clients of the Blue Door Clinic. I think intake workers are important to kind of being like the first stop for for clients that are coming through the door. Because I think that, you know, someone is either newly diagnosed HIV positive or they've been living with HIV for a while, but it's like this small part of their entire life. And when they come through the door, it's like they get to meet with the intake worker and we get to kind of just chat socially. Sometimes it, it moves into the medical really quickly, but other times it's like, well, how are you? How are you as a human in the world right now? And so What I think we're really striving to do as intake workers is, you know, to try to make Blue Door feel to be to to be a really welcoming place where people can come and like share what what is going on in their life, the good things and the bad things and some of the things that we might be able to support with, but also just to be able to like lend a, a listening ear to. A lot of the patients or clients that we're seeing, they have these healthcare access denial exhaustion 
you know, because a lot of them, they go places and they say no. There's a lot of negative uh, reactions from health service providers, from healthcare system. And just systematically, there's a lot of no. When you come to a country, when you're thinking there's going to be a lot of yes. So I think the intake case worker role for me is to provide an environment of yes or or an avenue to provide a solution to a problem that has been ongoing for a while. And a lot of the time, HIV is a minimal part of that. In terms of psychosocial issues generally, like it's it's kind of like everything under the umbrella you can think of. Yeah. And, and twice as hard because of the immigration and because of, of barriers that we have here in systems that are not built to support communities that are in yeah. this weird limbo. Well, I think language barriers, I think, was one of the biggest things. And then access to, like, communicating in terms of, like, having a Canadian cell phone number. There's a lot of related to immigration issues, a lot of relationship issues with their partners, their boyfriends, or there's a lot of that in isolation. And then stigma, stigma within your family to disclose your HIV status, to disclose even your immigration status, that you're a refugee in a new country that can come with a lot of heavy, like disclosure and mental health issues and finances, of course, having to work under the table, maybe with like employers that are not the best employers that care for you, but then you just need a job to put food on the table and kind of live day by day. A lot of the times when we think about immigration issues, there's so much focus on on like settlement and like, you know, in order to access even what is considered settlement supports, you need some kind of immigration status and an immigration status that, you know, is either permanent or refugee claimant, not that a lot of the temporary statuses that we see folks come through the clinic with. And so I think that's where like Alessandra and I end up putting in a lot of work and effort and we end up taking on extra role kind of outside of clinic hours because we become those supports when other agencies are limited. Uh, in that work. And I think also just to emphasize what Alessandra also said around like relationships, I find that that's one thing that we really hear a lot of, that people are here either on their own, or maybe they have like one family member or a partner that they came here with, or a partner that they've met here. Um, But having like experiencing conflict and, you know, not being sure how to navigate that relationship, how it'll affect their immigration, and then, you know, their work and uh, a number of different things like trying to understand the cultural nuances of, of like where they're from, what their experiences are. Are they um, even comfortable accessing some of the services that we're trying to connect them to? And sometimes they're not, like they're not ready for that. And so that that's also where like Alessandra and I, again, become like the primary person. Like we're the ones that are, you know, uh, texting and calling and WhatsApping and they, and they feel really supported and connected. At the beginning... Something that stood out for me is how isolating the person has been, how there was really no supports. A lot of the people that we see anything, sometimes it's been years since they can access any services because of fear of immigration. And I think it's the fear of the relationship between accessing healthcare and the process of immigration and the repercussions that they may have if they access services or if they receive treatment, right? If they have an STI, would the immigration people know? And then, then my claim will reduce. Like if I, if somebody gives me a prescription, my, my name is in the system, will that affect my immigration? I think a lot of that fear, it really took me by surprise that a lot of people had that 
it puts it into perspective that people would rather get sick than access healthcare and not be here in Canada. So that it speaks volumes. So true. How did your work change over the first year of operating the clinic? So it was a struggle at the beginning because we focused so much on getting the clinic up and running because we needed that structure to be able to say, okay, clients are coming through the door, but what are the services and supports that we offer? And one of the, the major gaps for clients has been access to medical care and medication. But then as we started seeing folks coming in, like they brought all of these other issues with them as well. And issues that I find that they weren't always sure if they could name, like if this is the space where they could talk about it because it is a medical clinic. And so at the beginning, we really focused on just following through the intake and that the process took a lot of time. As we've moved now to phone intakes, we're able to focus on like uh, deeper connections with clients that come in um, and getting a sense of what else is going on in their life and how we can better connect them to services or bridge gaps to allow them to access the supports that they need. Because the clinic was a walking clinic, right? So it was the first time that we will see a patient. So we will do the intake and then we will have like a mini case conference with the medical staff, either the nurse or the doctors to tell them what this patient is coming with. So that has shifted since COVID, right? So we do the intake. So like you said, we can focus more so on a follow-up, especially if it's not the first time that they come to the clinic, and then we can support them outside of clinic hours, uh, following up in our psychosocial support that happen outside of the clinic time that is mainly focused on the medical stuff. Yeah, I, th I think at the, at the beginning, because it, it was so important to, to get the clinical flow stuff figured out, it was, it was definitely a struggle, I think, for us. Sandra and yeah. I, just to try and keep track of ourselves as well, because we were just floating in this clinic and wondering, okay, well, what do, how, how do we make sure that our roles are, are clear and that we're able to follow up with clients and that we're able to still build connection and honor those connections as well? And so when we finally were like, yes, we need a, a tracking sheet, we need something because we're just floundering. It's, it's a very like basic brief document, but it was enough to kind of guide how we're, you know, doing assessments because with so many folks coming through the clinic, it gets really hard to keep track of, of folks. And so the tracking sheet and being able to communicate regularly, whether like through informal meetings and going through like a client lists, like that helps us make sure that we're on top of things. And I think that because we used to focus so heavily on the intake in our meetings, like that would take like half an hour or longer yeah. because it was a mix of both trying to get the intake questions done and then also trying to connect with that person. But I find that now that we can kind of do the intake over the phone and be like, okay, we're going to ask a bunch of questions. We're going to go through it super quick. Yeah. And then when you come into the clinic, you're going to meet the intake worker. You'll have a chance to really elaborate or talk about what's yeah. going on for you. So I think splitting that up has given us a lot more like, I don't want to say free time, but more flexible time during clinic yeah. to make sure that we're able to connect with and see yeah. everybody that comes through. Well, and I think it's funny because when we do the intake, like you said, it was like 45 minutes of, the, of that time, right? Like when we do it in person, but when you do it over the phone, I think the other day I had when a client be like, you know, it's easier because then 
right now when you're at the clinic we're like in this astronaut suit yeah. that kind of like you can show empathy you can show compassion so you're kind of like it's easier just to build up something that you already had or the seem ready to enter but you just follow up on things that we've heard it's like oh you know you talk on the weekend as opposed to like somebody's breaking down and then you're trying to smice with your eyes or something yeah. or show some emotion through your eyes but it's like you can't what has it meant for you to be a part of the Blue Door Clinic? I think being part of the Blue Door, it honestly has been like a dream come true. I think since I will never forget that meeting when we had a pitch in the tent and RHTN, leaving the meeting, I told Jeff and Jeff told me, he's like, we need to make this happen. And then it happened. And then I think that has filled my heart with joy because of the team that we have at the Blue Door Clinic has been one of the best teams that I've ever worked with. It's somebody, it's a reliable team, dependable, efficient, and it's action-oriented, which is something that I really appreciate. There's no endless meetings with no solution. There's meetings with action. So I think I appreciate that. And it's really one of the highlights of that I've ever done in my work life. For me, I came to Blue Door a little bit later, I think, in the journey, but I'm so grateful to be a part of the clinic. Our team is amazing. Like the openness to wanting to learn about different experiences and, you know, accumulate different kinds of knowledge. And like, I don't often see see that level of openness in a lot of the places that I have worked. And it's been just wonderful to see. And it makes me always feel great coming into the clinic, even if I'm stressed out and frazzled as Y'all know I am like 85% of the time. I always feel good coming into the clinic because I know the rest of you are there and I know it's going to be great. Even, even if it's busy and there's other things going on, I know we'll make it through. And that has been just so wonderful to be a part of. And I'm so grateful also to be able to um, meet all of the clients that we do and see how their journey has changed from, from the beginning until, until they're able to leave the clinic. They're so great and so skilled. Jeff, what was it like for you to be part of this project? You know, for me, nursing has always been about access and equity, who is allowed to get care and who is left behind. Being a part of this project meant we could open up a small part of the healthcare system to people usually excluded and hopefully give people with HIV more options to promote their health and well-being. What about you, Katie? What was it like for you to be a part of the project? Working at the Blue Door Clinic has been a great opportunity to work alongside a very skilled group of clinicians and enhance my knowledge of primary care, as well as a chance to develop and practice some additional nursing skills. It has been really rewarding to provide care to an underserved population. For Juan, Blue Door was able to help him start HIV treatment, get his viral load to undetectable, and support him during the early stages of his HIV diagnosis. Juan was referred to a family doctor at a local community health center for ongoing care, and he was able to engage with a local ASO, which helped address his feelings of social isolation and connect him with other people living with HIV. He got in touch with a lawyer at a local legal clinic and is in the process of getting status in Canada. His rash turned out to be an allergic uticaria from a new soap he had tried. He got some antihistamines and it went away but we've seen everything from hives to Kaposi sarcoma at Blue Door, so I'm glad he was okay. So Jeff, what's next for Blue Door? To be honest, we might just need to expand our service. We were at max capacity after one month of operating. 
I mean, our goal was to see 50 people per year, and we saw 70 in the first six months. Those were very hectic times. But we haven't had to turn anyone away yet. We do need help with getting people connected to ongoing care, which has been a challenge. Part of that challenge is the funding definition that community health centers use for their uninsured funds, which isn't accessible to people on student visas or visitor visas. We also need to up our TB testing game and figure out how to do the skin test, even though we have two weeks between clinic dates. Expanding the Blue Door Clinic makes sense to me. It's music to my ears. And on that note, I think it gets us to the end of our podcast today. Thanks for listening, everybody. For more information about us, visit our soon-to-be-launched website at www.bluedoorclinic.org. Bye for now. Goodbye. This episode was written and produced by Jeff Reinhardt and Katie Connolly. Special thanks to Alessandro, Simran, Alland, and the rest of the Blue Door crew, which include the Committee for Accessible AIDS Treatment, the Black Coalition for AIDS Prevention, Casey House, the Center for Spanish-Speaking Peoples, Hassle-Free Clinic, the Ontario HIV Treatment Network, Parkdale Queen West Community Health Center, Regent Park Community Health Center, Sherborne Health, and Toronto People with AIDS Foundation. For more information on CAT, visit www.hivimmigration.ca. Our music is by Kevin McLeod. This podcast series was produced by CANAC, the Canadian Association of Nurses in HIV AIDS Care, and was first published in the fall of 2020. If you're interested in HIV nursing and want to get more involved, consider becoming a member of CANAC. For details about what we do and what membership can connect you to, visit us at www.canac.org. CANAC has membership across Canada, and we acknowledge the diverse First Nations, Métis, and Inuit communities and peoples with whom we work and on whose land we practice as nurses. Indigenous peoples have an inherent right to the land. Acknowledging this and other connections is one small step towards cultivating good relationships with Indigenous people and challenging ongoing colonialism and oppression. The land acknowledgement is a small gesture in supporting First Nation, Métis, and Inuit peoples and communities. We have a lot more work to do as we work towards reconciliation. And so, we leave you with this question. Wherever you may be listening, who were the caretakers of that land before you were there?